Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I pray that you would quiet our hearts. We're thankful that, that, uh, that this week has passed, and yet for many of us in this city who were around a year ago, and uh, especially for our members who work in the Capitol and in government, it, it's tough to remember what happened a year ago as well. We continue to pray that you would bring healing across divisions in our city and our nation, but also in that that you would bring clarity and justice. Father, we, as we open your word today, it's, it's going to challenge us on how we think about power, how we think about Christ's kingdom. And so I pray that you would open our hearts to see things as you see them, that your spirit would move in our hearts to show us where we need to be confronted and also to bring healing and comfort where we need to be comforted. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in, our, in a series in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, you can turn it with me to John chapter 6. We're going to cover the first 15 verses um, here today. Um, and also, we have kids in with us today. The, the, this Sunday and next Sunday, at least, with the rise in massive spike in COVID cases, we are putting a pause on childcare and kids' worship for a couple of weeks and hoping that things will settle down again soon. Um, and so if, if you're a kid that's in here, I want to encourage you again that you should have received some crayons and a piece of paper as you came in. And so I would love if you hear something today that is we read the, this passage in the Bible or as I preach, and if one thing strikes you or makes you think more, or you like what you've heard, then take some time to draw it and then show it to your parent at the end of the service. All right, so with that, we are in John chapter 6, and we come now to a couple of stories in a row that are fairly well known in Jesus' ministry. They'll, they'll be familiar to many of you, and these are some of the highlights that get talked about, and that, that even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you may have heard of these things. And so this week, we're going to see Jesus feed 5,000 people. And the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish is a well-known story of, of Jesus' life and ministry. Next week, we'll see him walk on water. And so these are, these are well-known passages. And, but, but as we read these, my hope is that we'll, be, we'll have fresh eyes to be able to see them clearly and that, um, that, it, that we'll also be able to see what John, our, the author of this gospel, is trying to get across to us and intending for us. And today, there's a theme that runs through this text about power, about Christ's kingdom. 
This is something that always hits home a little bit in D.C. because we're the capital city. We have a certain arrogance about us. And, it, and D.C. is obsessed with power. Now, not just in the obvious ways. I think that we can all say that, okay, yes, and we know that that's, that's a thing here. But, but not just in the obvious ways. Power, one way to think about power isn't just being in a position of authority. It's not just positional, but, but power is the ability to act. It's the ability to accomplish something. And our city has a lot of hustle to it. People don't live in D.C. to sit back and reflect. You don't have people like retiring to D.C. When they, to put their feet up at the end of their life. Like, you go to other places for that. You don't have people saying, like, I'm going to go on a vacation to D.C. so that I can just enjoy the countryside. Like, people come here to do and to move and to act. And you don't, people don't move here to relax because the pace is so slow or because it's so easy to live here and the cost of living is so affordable. People are in D.C. to do something, to act. You've got ideas and plans and agendas and things that you want to accomplish. And if you live here long enough and swim in these waters long enough, it'll seep into you and it can be hard to even see it because it's ever-present around us. It's in the air we breathe here. But it also shapes the way that we see the world. It shapes the way that we understand Christianity. It shapes the way we understand Christ's kingdom because we begin to assess and evaluate things primarily through an idea or a grid of power constructs and then begin to evaluate whether something is useful enough for us. But Christ's kingdom and true Christianity turns everything upside down. And we'll see that today in the text. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. And so this is one that we should pay attention to. It's, it's significant. The other three Gospels, um, the synoptics they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were focused more on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, where John has more of a focus in Jerusalem. But there's something important here for all of us, important to be included enough in all four Gospel accounts. And today we will see in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, the values of the true kingdom of Christ's kingdom. So this is what we read in John chapter 6. After this... So Jesus had been in Jerusalem, remember, he healed a crippled beggar, he debated with religious leaders, he showed that he was equal with God and united with God, and now he says, it says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the, that, lar that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people might eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the, of, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we see here the abundance of the true king. And we see the expectations of the people. And so this, the, there are themes that we've been tracing all the way through John and that some themes that are going to explode through chapter 6 as we study this over the next few weeks. Um, and so even like as our, as our team was doing our, our text study together this week and breaking down this text, we were having trouble not like jumping ahead to what Jesus gets to after because there's, there's so much interwoven here. But we're going to try to settle in to these 15 verses for today. And, and so with this, we, are, we see the values of Christ's kingdom. Now, notice this, that, that the people were following. Why was the large crowd following him? Because of the signs they saw him doing. Now, all the way through John's gospel, he has shown us people pursuing Jesus because they wanted to see more miracles. People being impressed by Jesus because they knew that the power of God was on him in unique ways. But all the way through John's gospel, he also shows us the insufficiency of following Jesus just for the miracles he produces. And he contrasts that with people that turn to Jesus in true faith. And so there's this, been this ongoing reminder and lesson to be learned that if we approach God as the one, because we're looking for, to be, for proximity to power and looking for signs, that that is not the same as entrusting ourselves to him in saving faith. And so we see, and then the people wanted to, wanted to make him king. Jesus knew it. Now, it says there were 5,000 men. That's specific language here. And so there are different estimates on how big the actual crowd was when you included women and children. Um, some say anywhere from 10 to 20,000 is possible here. But he's got 5,000 men who, are, who Jesus knows are ready to take him by force to make him, his ki- make him their king. Like he and his little ragtag band of a dozen fishermen were not going to stop 5,000 men. And that's when he slips away and withdraws himself. And in this story, we see, again, we see the values of Christ's kingdom and that they're upside down from the kingdoms of this world. So first, there's three values we're going to look at today. First, Jesus values a different kind of power. He values a different kind of power. That, and, and again, we've seen this throughout. So back in John chapter 2, he was in Jerusalem, and, and he had been performing signs. He'd been healing people. He had gone down for a Passover feast, and, um, and he turned over the tables of the money changers. He identified himself as the true temple. And it says when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So this is saying they were following Jesus to have access to his power, but they weren't actually turning him to him in belief, and so Jesus slipped away again, didn't entrust himself to these people. Nicodemus came that night and met with him at night, and even there, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you are doing. And so that's why the crowds had built. And, 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 and this is, a, again, different than true faith because if, we, if our faith is contingent on the miracles and the provision and the signs and the power of God that we see, then we will be constantly not trusting ourselves to God and for him to act in sovereignty, but expecting that he will, will reprove himself to us over and over and over again. But, 
most of us are an awful lot like the crowd here. We're drawn to power and powerful people, at least as long as they're useful to us. And when they cease to be useful, we demonize them. Now it says here that this was around the time of the Passover. And the, the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. And so there are three Passover feasts that are mentioned in John's gospel. The first one I already brought us to in John chapter 2. He was in Jerusalem for that Passover. This is the second Passover feast, and he's back up in Galilee feeding the 5,000. The third Passover feast, if there's only three, can you guess what the third one is? It's when he has the Last Supper with the disciples, the night that he's arrested to be killed. And so these are the three Passovers that we see, and John brings that up. So the first, he turns over tables in the temple in Jerusalem and identified himself as the true temple. Here, the second, he, um, he's, he identifies himself as the bread of life, and that's what we're going to get into in the next few weeks. There's all kinds of ties to Exodus here and Moses. Like, here, the people call him, say he's the prophet, that they're identifying him as the, the great prophet in the line of Moses the prophet. And so he identifies himself as the bread of life in what follows, and, and, so, and, and then when we get to the third, he becomes the Passover lamb. And so this is the flow through John's gospel, but we also need to understand the, the connotations of the Passover in, this, in the place and setting that it, this occurs in. For the Jewish people at this time, remember that they are occupied and ruled by Rome. And so there's all kinds of tension with Rome, and they were looking at Jesus to be king with all these messianic prophecies, but applying those mentally in nationalistic ways and militaristic ways, expecting Jesus to come and throw off the shackles of Rome so that the people could be free, so they wouldn't be taxed anymore. And Jesus consistently pushes against that, and they, what, what the people of his time didn't realize is he did not come to deal with earthly kingdoms and political disputes. He came bringing an entirely different kingdom that he wasn't going to have to work into. It wasn't a big thing for Jesus, God in the flesh, to overcome an earthly king. He needed to take his seat at the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father over all things. But for Jewish people at the time, Passover, it was a religious feast, but it also had become a deeply nationalistic feast because the people would look back to the Exodus account and the story in Exodus of God delivering his people from slavery in a foreign land, and, and it became kind of a rallying point for a lot of zealous people to look forward to and expect and anticipate the overthrowing of Rome so that they could again escape those shackles. And so... Something like the 4th of July, I guess. That's a pretty big party here that celebrates our country, that's, and that's a good thing. But maybe more like July 12th in Northern Ireland. And if you're familiar with the landscape politically and re religiously in Northern Ireland, we have helped plant a couple of churches in Belfast, and so we've gotten acquainted with it really closely. One of the, one of the times that I had the privilege to be there and to preach was in July leading into that, and they had me come and preach on Ecclesiastes on God and government and politics leading into the most divided day of their year of year, where they build, like, I don't know if you've seen this guy. You can look it up. They build stacks of pallets that go, like, five and six stories high and put pictures and symbols on them and then burn them as massive effigies. It's, it's a really crazy and intense thing. But they're celebrating the Battle of, of the Boyne. 
it's looking back to, and it's, it's, it's this, this nationalistic overtone. And so this has, maybe even has more of a feeling that way. And so for Jesus to be at the Passover time and to perform this miracle, and when people are trying to make him king, we need to understand this context because what they're looking for is the person that is going to be their deliverer from Rome. And Jesus leaves. That's his response. He slips away. He withdrew to a mountain or a high place. This is likely the Golan Heights. Now, I, I don't know if most of us put in Jesus' place there would have slipped the crowd. I don't know how to answer that for myself. We're going to see this as he gets into these, what he teaches as this chapter goes on, that he goes on to teach that he's the bread of life and that, that if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, you can have no part with him. And all of a sudden, the crowds are like, we're out of here. His disciples even say later on in the chapter, like, Jesus, that was kind of a hard thing to teach. And he's, he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter goes, what are we supposed to do? Like, no, we're in it. We're stuck with you. But, but Jesus here, like, his popularity is growing. He's got somewhere between ten and 20,000 people, 5,000 men who, have, who are, have come and followed him, that are seeking his power, that have recognized something special about him, that you have this momentum growing. And then he feeds all of them with a boy's lunch, and in the midst of all of that, at this point, I think many of our hearts would have, would have looked at that and, and come up with all of the justifications for why the crowds were right. Like, this is a moment. I'm going to seize this opportunity. I'm going to lead these people because God is moving in this. But Jesus sees through it. He didn't entrust himself to men because he knows what's in man. And his kingdom values a different kind of power. His, this king is not dependent on popular opinion. There's no election, there's, and it's not subject to the fickle hearts of people who are looking for, eternally for more signs to validate their whims. D.A. Carson says here, it's important to note that John does not argue that the people are wrong in this judgment, that Jesus is the prophet and, the king, and a king, but only in their estimate of its significance. Their attention was focused on food and on victory, not on the divine self-disclosure mediated through the incarnate Son, not on the Son as the bread of life, not on a realistic assessment of their own need. And Leslie Newbegin, a theologian, said here, this is not faith. The people turning and trying to make Jesus king, the people declaring he's the prophet, he says, this is not faith, but unbelief. They've not understood who Jesus is, Jesus will not be the instrument of any human enthusiasm or the symbol for any human program. To say Jesus is king is true if the word king is wholly defined by the person of Jesus. But it is false and blasphemous if Jesus is made instrumental to a definition of kingship derived from elsewhere. You understand what Newbegin is saying there? He's saying if we use our categories to talk about who Jesus is, it falls short to the point of being false and blasphemous. If we're going to come to Christ and recognize that he is the incarnate God, as, as, Carson, as Dr. Carson said, that he is the bread of life, that he is the incarnate son, that he is divine self-disclosure as God mediates his presence to us, if we're realistic about our own need and turn to Christ as the sovereign over all things, then he redefines kingship and redefines what kingdom is and shows us what it's like to exist in God's kingdom. But we should never be surprised if we believe in the depravity of humanity, that the systems and structures that human beings build are always going to be depraved. And Jesus' kingdom is upside down. He is the king, 
but he leads as a shepherd, not as a tyrant. Did you catch that? I, I love this, that he gets everybody together, and then he has his disciples where he, he calls the disciples to him, and he, and he tests Philip. Like, I love that John always gives us these little asides. It's one of the th- reasons I love his gospel, because he's always like, here's what was really going on. <laughs> like, like, and he does it over and over and over again. Like, Jesus gets anointed, and Judas Iscariot is complaining about the, the value of the perfume and saying, that money could have given, given to the poor. And John is like, he was stealing. <laughs> Like, like he's, he always reveals everything. So here he says, like, if Philip, Jesus says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so these people can eat? Philip was from Bethsaida, which was up in this area on the northeast edge of the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is saying to Philip, he's close to his hometown, like, hey, Philip, you're from here. Where can we buy enough bread for this? And John's like, he was testing him. <laughs> Like, Jesus was not surprised by this. He wasn't actually asking him to go to a market. He knew what he was going to do, but he still said to Philip, where can we do this? And, and Philip answered him, it's 200 denarii worth of bread. Like, that's the estimates that I was trying to figure out. It was like, well, a denarius is a day's wages for a worker. So I was like, great. I have no idea how to translate that in today's, into today's terms. This is, and then it's like, this is how many months it includes. And it's like, that still doesn't help me. The best estimate I could find is this is somewhere around 15 grand. And so Philip's like, even 15 grand wouldn't like, buy a bite for everybody. We're not talking about a meal. We're talking about a bite. And then he, Andrew comes up and he has the boy. And so he says, all right, Jesus says, have the people sit down. And do you notice what John notes there? Now, there was much grass in the place. And so Jesus had people to sit down. It's striking to me, and maybe this is reading too much, but it, it's striking to me that when we read Psalm 23, we read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So as this crowd comes to Jesus looking for power and signs, he brings them in, provides food and nourishment for them, and has them sit down in the green hillsides of the grass of, uh, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So the question for us as we look at Jesus is are we ready to follow his voice as the good shepherd? Are we ready to trust that he will provide what we need even if it looks insufficient to us? Are we going to trust that when we come to Jesus with hunger, it might not look like we want or be in the timing that we want, but are we going to trust that he will f- provide for us so that we will look to hear his voice as a, as a shepherd and follow him and obey him? Is that how we're approaching Jesus? Or are we hoping to shoehorn Jesus into a mold of our image of what he ought to be? Are we trying to shape Jesus so that we can tap into his power to advance our own lives or suit our own agendas? And this is where it gets terribly dangerous because we see this all the time in the way that things are leveraged politically. And it happens across an entire spectrum politically. So it's not like this is reserved for one side or another or all the different shades in between. 
that people will take a, an important issue, a good issue, and a good cause, and then decide that this is the only cause that matters to Jesus and shape all of their version of Christianity around lobbying against that cause. But what happens here is that the most Christian-sounding agendas that we have can become some of the most dangerous because they take good issues and lift them up to be the ultimate issues and the litmus test for somebody's true Christianity. If Jesus is the king of all things and a good shepherd, he's not going to fit our molds for what his power should be. It becomes limiting to Christ's kingdom to say that it only has a singular focus. And it's our way to dictate to what ought to be most important to him. Rather than letting Jesus set the terms on what his kingdom is like and realizing that it will always defy and exceed our expectations. So Jesus values a different kind of power. Second, Jesus values the insignificant. Jesus values the insignificant. And again, I love his interaction with Philip here. You know, John's comment, Jesus knew what he was going to do. He, he wasn't stumped. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't surprised by the circumstances here. Jesus did see an opportunity to help his disciples see and mature and grow. And meanwhile, Andrew goes and finds this a boy ready to give up his packed lunch. And we need to understand what this is as well, because I think I hear like five barley loaves and two fish, and I'm like, that sounds like a lot of lunch for a little boy. Like, I mean, I have a boy that eats, like, four breakfasts a day. And so I, I believe it. Like, he can take down some food. It's, it's incredible. The, the, I used to hear this when I was, like, in high school and a teenager that my parents would be like, I, you've got to stop eating. We can't afford this. And I was like, what are you talking about? Now I have one. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But, but we're not talking about, like, a nice loaf of artisanal bread. That's not what we're talking about. And we're not talking about St. Peter's fish. They have these tilapia that are specific to the Sea of Galilee that are called St. Peter's fish that are delicious and, they, and they, 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 like they flourish in that setting. We're not talking about nice, fresh-caught, cooked fish. We're not talking about delicately assembled sashimi. <laughs> like, that's not what we're dealing with. Barley was the food of the poor. It was for people who couldn't afford nicer contents to make their bread. And the barley loaves that are mentioned here, don't think about it as a loaf of bread. Realistically, it was much more what we would call a dinner roll. And so we're talking about, and the fish here were likely preserved fish, whether smoked or salted and dried, or, or they would also pickle fish. And so this is the food of the poor. And we're not talking about big fish. We're talking about side items to go with the barley loaves. And so more realistically, this, what this boy has is the food of poverty. And he's not bringing nice things here, but, but he's a small boy who doesn't even get named in the story. But Andrew has shown faith all the way through. He's the one that went to Peter and, and said, hey, we found the Messiah and introduced Jesus to Peter. But he's always called Simon Peter's brother because Peter rose to greater prominence in the early church. But he finds this boy, says, all right, Jesus, I found him, and look what he has. He has some crackers and sardines. 
It was a lunch for a single boy. And in the midst of that, Jesus blessed it and gave thanks. And I think it's safe for us to to believe that this was a traditional Jewish blessing. And so as he gave thanks, John doesn't record his words here, but it, it probably sounded something like, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, except in Aramaic. And so Jesus thanks God, his father, for it. He takes these crackers and sardines and lifts them up and says, Father, thank you for bringing bread from the earth. And the result is people get far more than a bite that would have cost 15 grand. They all eat to their fill, it says in verse 12. And then he told his disciples, go and gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. And they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that were left by those who had eaten. And so Jesus takes this sad lunch that most of us would probably turn our noses up at and not eat. We'd say, nah, I'm good, I'll just wait for dinner. But he multiplies that and feeds thousands of people with this boy's lunch. And they eat to their fill. Now, there's more here than just a moralistic lesson to share your food, which some of you might need to hear. That's fine. Men, I'm looking at you. But there's more here. Most of us, if we're honest, and this is hard to admit, but most of us feel small. We feel limited. We feel insecure. And if you don't feel those ways, give it a couple of years. A place like D.C. has a tendency to make that even clearer, that in other places, you could move somewhere else, and you might be the best and the brightest and the most driven and the most highly educated. Here, there is always someone smarter, someone more savvy, somebody more willing to sacrifice themselves to get what they want, better at what they do, better educated and willing to take less money. And at some point, the reality sets in that what we have to offer is pretty meager, and that even becomes more so if we understand the reality of Christ's kingdom and what we bring into that. That if you're a Christian, well, like, what is it that we're hoping for if you're a Christian? I mean, if, you're more, if it's more than just like, this is my individual spiritual pursuit. Like, if you buy into the idea that Jesus is renewing and restoring all things, then what you are saying is, I believe that, that this Jewish man who was killed almost 2,000 years ago that he actually raised from death to life, that he is God in the flesh, and, and I believe that, that God's spirit continues to move in power to change people's lives now. And so, so we believe that God is going to transform people's lives and change their hearts and bring them healing and hope and forgiveness and restoration now in D.C. But So we pray for and work together as a church believing that revival could come. And revival is the, the intensification of the ordinary work of the Spirit. That means that, that sleepy Christians might actually wake up and take their faith seriously. That, that people that think they're Christians but aren't actually following Jesus but looking for proximity to his power like the crowd would actually get saved and come into his presence. That we believe that lost people can be reached and we believe that the restoration and renewal of all things is actually going to happen that perfect justice will come, that perfect righteousness will come, that, that wickedness and evil and oppression and sickness and sorrow and global pandemics and plague and mourning and pain and death will be exterminated and extinguished for good. These are the things we believe. 
How capable are you to make any of that happen? Not. <laughs> like, I can stand here and deliver, I'm not saying this is what's happening this morning, to be clear, but I could, <laughs> I could stand here and give you the most insight into God's word that anyone's ever given and, and preach the most perfect, eloquent sermon that has the right illustrations at the right moments and the, the right way that it, it, it's supposed to hit and take you on this journey that leaves you impressed by the, the oratory and communication, and there is no power that I have to change your heart. That's the work of God. We can't make somebody follow Jesus. We can't make somebody interested to hear about Jesus. Let alone, we're going to bring perfect justice and renewal and restoration of all things and conquer death. Now, it's clear to us, the only hope we have is that from the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. The death has been conquered. That he was raised from death to life and ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns as the king over all things. That's the only hope we have. And so when we start to realize our own insignificance, it can hurt. Like, we're talking about revival and the movement of God's kingdom, and most of us are going to struggle to get up tomorrow morning and struggle to sleep tonight. It's too much for us. It's beyond all of us. But, but here's what we need to know. Jesus sees you and would love to take your crackers and sardines life and make it a bottomless brunch. <laughs> he isn't stumped. He isn't intimidated. He isn't surprised by the circumstances of your life. He isn't surprised that we're trying to figure out how to navigate a pandemic that just won't quit. He's not surprised by the relational strife and tension you're facing. He's not surprised by your anxiety and depression. He's not surprised by your, your struggles right now. He's not surprised by your own insecurities. And he might just be testing whether you're willing to give what you do have and put it into his hands, trusting that the God, his Father, will take that and can multiply the impact of it beyond your wildest imagination. Because Jesus takes what is small and insignificant and makes it bountiful. He gives it in abundance. Again, the boy isn't even named here. We don't learn his name. And, and yet, Jesus used his lunch, his gift, to feed 5,000 men, up to, up to 20,000 people. You realize that is the seating capacity of Audi Field, where the DC United play. And he fed a crowd that size with crackers and sardines. And part of the reason all four Gospels include this is that was a massive crowd that were eyewitnesses to the power and ministry of Jesus that would still be around as these Gospels are, were written and still would remember eating the barley rolls and the fish, that they tasted that food. It was a major event in the region that, that wouldn't have been forgotten. But Jesus used that boy's willingness to feed the multitude. Now, as we look into the new year, this is something that we're always assessing our lives, and, or maybe you're the, like the contrarian that's like, I don't believe in resolutions. That's fine. Pick a different day and assess your life. 
be thoughtful and reflective at some point and have some goals for yourself. If you're not going to do it on January 1st, then whatever. Do it on January 18th or February 7th or July 4th. No. <laughs> withdraw that one. <laughs> now, but, but learn from this today. You want to see Jesus move in your life in the new year? Do you want your life to accomplish something bigger than you're able to accomplish on your own? Do you, do you, want to, do you, do you look at yourself and feel like you are more sardine, crackers and sardines than bottomless brunch? Then that means you're being realistic about your own need. And you might be exactly who Jesus would like to use. The more we think of, of ourselves, the more God will humble us. But when we realize who we are and that we don't have much to offer, we can follow the, the pattern and the pathway of this boy. Come to Jesus and give him all you have, all that you have into his hands, no matter how insignificant you might feel. Like, you notice the boy here wasn't like, well, Jesus, can I keep a couple of those barley loaves? He gives everything he has to him and says, here you go. Take it and use it. And then trust that he is the one who multiplies the impact. But you might never see it. You see, we just don't know in our lives the effect that little things can have. You don't know the, the impact of an encouraging word or note that you write in somebody's life. It might come at an exact moment when they're in despair and God is using you as his voice to lift them up and remind them of where their hope lies. You don't know the, the, the difference that your simple presence consistently at your community group will make. That, that being able to embrace somebody and give them a hug or encourage somebody or pray for someone. Like when we hear other people praying for us, it lifts our hearts in ways that we can't accomplish on our own. A hug, a smile that welcomes somebody into your life, a, a meal provided for somebody that's in need or investing your time and your talent and your resources into a church. We will just never understand the impact of our lives, but Jesus can take what is small and multiply it. All right, third and finally, Jesus values giving in abundance. There is no scarcity mindset here. Jesus is not like, well, let's make sure to have just enough. Like, hey, hey, you've taken, you've taken a f way more of that bread than you should have. They weren't policing the crowd. They weren't, they weren't measuring this, the portion size for everybody. Remember what it says. In verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, go and collect it up, and they had 12 baskets left over. And he gathers up the leftovers. Nothing is wasted. And that should be encouraging to you and me because there are times when we feel like our lives have been chewed up and left on the ground, and Jesus is saying, it still, it still matters. I'm going to gather this in. But churches get this messed up all the time. Christians get this messed up all the time. And, and use creative ways to talk. Use Bible language to live in a scarcity mentality and become miserly with our money. And we need to be fiscally responsible. We need to be wise. We need, and good and faithful stewardship of God resources is, is important. Like at Redemption Hill, our members see our budget. They get quarterly category level reports and updates on how money is being spent. That in kind of, we have systems of accountability with our treasurer and finance team that we're putting together. And there's like all these systems have been audited and checked. Like it, those kinds of things are important. That kind of accountability and reporting is important. But we have to be careful not to drift into a scarcity mindset in the midst of it. 
And we are much more likely to drift toward a scarcity mindset than toward generosity. That's in our individual lives and as a church family. In the name of good stewardship, we can get stingy. In the name of concern, we get suspicious. And we can come to trust more in our plans and in our reserves, in our bank accounts, than in God's desire to bring blessing and abundance to his people. One of the things that I love about Redemption Hill is that so many of our members just ooze generosity in the way you give to this church and you've continued to support us so that in the middle of all this uncertainty and the, the, like facing all the challenges we have over the last two years, we, we're bringing on new pastors into the church. Like, thank, thank God for you, that you make it possible for our staff to be sustained and for us to continue the work we're doing. And, but in, also in church planting, that, that we give a lot of money to church planting every single year and into benevolence and to care for our city. And, and that, but also in connecting, I mean, it's generosity to connect in community groups and be there. And if you're having a weekly meal together, to actually contribute to that, something more than a half gallon of Arizona iced tea. <laughs> and be an active participant. But I, you see this on the Redemption Hill bulletin board. I think it's one of the coolest ministries in the church. Where people have needs, they put it out there, it gets met. Like, there are so many times that something will go out there and I'll be like, oh, I'll send an email to the person. They're like, I'm just, I just got six emails. Like, it's covered. If you, you know, meal trains go out and you provide meals for families in the church. If you, we have some babies that have been born, so if you haven't yet, jump into that. Help provide meals. But people giving stuff away, and it's incredible to see that. But, but, because that shows that we understand something of the gospel. Like, if we really understand this, if we really understand Christ's kingdom and value what he values, then we'll see, we'll see God work. <laughs> the more we will see God provide for us, and we'll catch that value, and it will show up in a posture in our lives, in our church, of, of a posture in a culture of celebration and generosity. And that'll show the measure of our faith. So Jesus values giving in abundance. There was an overflow of food for this multitude. So... As we close up today, this is the question that meets us as we read about the feeding of the 5,000, is what are you looking for out of Jesus today? Are you looking for a king who will give you access or proximity to power? Looking for signs that, that this is going to be good for you in your life? Are you, that, will give you, that he'll give you opportunity in your life and maybe notoriety or to accomplish the right things for you? Are you looking for him to give to you in abundance while knowing internally who you think he ought to leave hungry? Are you looking for Jesus to be made in the image and likeness that is most palatable to you? Or are you looking to him as the true king? Willing to recognize his power and glory knowing that it means following him will be uncomfortable for you because Jesus turns our categories upside down. He values a different kind of power. He values the insignificant, and he values giving in abundance. And today, we need to ask whether we're part of the crowd here that wants to crown Jesus for our purposes, or whether we're more like the boy. And no matter who you are, if you're not a Christian, this is the invitation to you. If you think you're a Christian, but you're realizing that you're not quite sure, this is an invitation to you. If you're a Christian who is living passionately for Jesus, this is still an invitation to us. It's the same for all of us. Come to Jesus today. Give everything you have. Put it in his hands like the boy did and say, here, it's yours. No matter how insignificant it might feel. Say, Jesus, I'm going to take my crackers and sardines and put it into your hands. And trust 
That as he gives thanks to the Father, that we can join him in that and trust that he can multiply the impact beyond anything we can accomplish. You've been trying to do it in your own strength. How long are you going to keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results? Turn to Jesus today. His kingdom renews and restores all things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts today to trust that you can use us beyond what we are capable of. I pray that today that you would forgive us for the selfishness we often approach you in. We're concerned about only our needs and only our desires and only the things that we're facing and our challenges. And and we know that you want us to bring those things, but Father, would you give us eyes to get beyond that and to see the world with the lenses of your kingdom and to see the opportunities we have to be a part of what you're doing, knowing that you can meet us in our needs and meet us in the challenges we face and open opportunities that we can't expect but trusting your timing and your provision in those things rather than trying to dictate how you're going to do it. I pray today that your spirit would move in our hearts. Wake us up. Would you shape these values in us to value a different kind of power like Jesus did, to value what looks insignificant to our world like Jesus did, and to value abundance and generosity through our lives like Jesus did. And so, Father, we bring ourselves to you. The meager loaves and fish that we have to offer. And trust that you can move in power. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.